The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome to the show today. Uh, this is Carol Bossert. Thank you for tuning in. And I have a great guest today, um, a colleague of mine of uh, in the uh, Praxis Museum Projects Group, uh, a consultant in acoustics and owner of his own company, SH Acoustics, and that is my colleague, Steve Haas. Welcome to the show today, Steve. Thank you, Carol. It's great to be here. Great. Steve, uh, why don't you share your career path with our audience and you know, maybe also share how you got interested in museum acoustical design? Sure. Well, I first became interested in acoustics because I'm a lifelong musician, as many of us are, and I, but I realized that I was not uh, good enough to make a career out of it, so I still wanted to do something related to music but had more of a passion for engineering, so that led me to acoustic engineering. And really, I had, other than going to museums as a kid, I have no great story growing up to to share about uh, my interest in museums. So it really happened after I got into the work world. And and I thank two people for this who both are no longer with me, two mentors of mine. Uh, The first is Chris Jaffe of Jaffe Acoustics, who who is the founder. And uh, he was, uh, I guess, um, good enough to hire me as a kid out of college back in the late 80s, and that started it all off with my exposure to acoustics, but also there I met a, um, a senior audio guru, I'll call him named Bill Lobb, who Bill, uh, for many years, was my partner in crime in designing museums. He, he just he had a wonderful way, as, as a very technical person, he had a wonderful way of telling me about how people deal with sound in museums. And so it was the U.S. Holocaust Museum that really was my first project uh, involved uh, in, in museums, both on what we'll call the base building side with some of the performing arts spaces, but mainly the permanent exhibits. And that's really what kicked it all off. And, and Bill was just so instrumental to teaching me everything I, I know today. And we carry a lot of his philosophies and concepts forward. 
that's a that's a very very good story, uh, and I think it, uh, just reinforcing since there are many uh, emerging uh, museum professionals and those interested in uh, getting into this business. And I think it's true no matter what business we're in. Those mentors that help us along the way are just so critically important, and I think we just don't talk enough about them. So I appreciate you uh, acknowledging uh, the help of these two. Uh, two gentlemen in your professional lives, uh, and Absolutely. I'm sure you know, you know your your personal life as well. Since mm-hmm. being in the museum world, whether we're you know working within the museum or we're a consultant, our our lives blend. And I think that that's also, at least for me, that's one uh, one of the things that I like so much about it because I mm. you know I bring my whole self to to my work. I'm sure you for do sure. too. For sure. So then, what was the inspiration for you to to start your own business, sort of go out mm-hmm. on your own? Well, at, at my former firm, I had really started developing uh, all of the the process and and practice of what we do with Museum Sound, which I'm sure we'll go into during this interview. Uh, and I was there for 14 years, and and at that point, I felt like I wanted a bit more freedom to do what I I would love to do and take things to the next level, Uh, not just in the museums, but my my firm also has another core market, which is also a bit unorthodox for people in the acoustic world, and that is uh, private homes and uh, dealing with uh, theaters and music spaces and pretty much anything that that uh, addresses sound quality and, and comfort in the home so that's the other half of our, our business that we did so I took both of those elements that interested me personally and professionally and just merged them and that's what created SH Acoustics. That's very interesting uh, uh, and I'm sure the two sides feed off of each other, but you know, I uh, one of the things that you and I have talked about before, um, it, and it you know, it came up a bit when I uh, interviewed Stephen Rosen, another colleague of ours mm-hmm. who is involved in lighting design, is that I think it may be fair to say, correct me if I'm wrong, that many museum professionals, uh, certainly audiences, museum goers, don't really consider sound design when they think about museums. You know, Mm -hmm. sound design is something that you see, you know, it obviously has to be very involved if you're building a symphony hall or an opera hall. Or a recording studio. Or a recording studio. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, when did museums begin to sort of think about acoustics when they were designing their spaces? I'm still waiting for that. <laughs> uh, in, in all seriousness, yes. I mean, that, that is, it, it really is a struggle uh, because I, for one, would, after 20, I'm on 27 years in this industry uh, working in the field of museums, and it is just, always still surprising how few museums I go to. And I I truly travel the world to look for museums that have done sound well. And for every one that I find, there's probably 75 to 100 that have very little to no uh, built-in sound management, sound quality control in in their facility. And, And this includes museums that are filled with media, 
Um, this includes music museums, which are the most surprising to me that there are there are those out there that focus on music and sound and they just don't they don't address it. They don't address it right. It's it's more of like the the sound is done by the curators and with and, and no offense to our, our curator friends, but they, they just don't have the expertise to be able to implement uh, what needs to be implemented. And so I hope that we're doing our little part to raise the bar, to, to make awareness, I guess, through interviews like this, of, of why sound is important, and, and for many reasons, too, which we'll go into. Well, I think what's... Uh it was interesting when you were uh, you you were talking about one of you know your first job or your uh, introduction to museums was working with uh, you know the Holocaust Museum project here in Washington D.C. and and mm-hmm. that project was groundbreaking on so many levels uh, that and they they continue to uh, to remind me uh, of how groundbreaking it was and one was in its. Uh, a very conscious effort of thinking about sound as a an exhibit element. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? <clears throat> that that is correct. And and the Holocaust Museum was also my first introduction to Ralph Applebaum Associates, who uh, before this had really never done any serious thinking about sound, acoustics, audio, video media, and, and they've told me that uh, many times, and that this is really groundbreaking for them as one of the leaders in our industry for exhibit design, and of course, we've gone on to do a lot of projects with um, Ralph Applebaum all the way to current day, and so I really, I'm indebted to them as well for taking a chance, for, for trying to, to change the paradigm uh, of exhibit design way back in starting in the early 90s and carrying that through today. And now there are, there are plenty of others who have followed in their footsteps to be able to think more holistically about not just visual elements or tactile elements, but also oral and other elements of the senses. Wow! Uh, no, you're you are you are absolutely right, and I think it's like so many things. We know when it's wrong, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm thinking right. of you know, as you said, we uh, I too am fortunate enough uh, to to travel, and I'm always you know whether it's for pleasure or for work, I'm always seeking out the uh, the museums in the area, large, small. Uh, and you can always tell, uh, you know, the, uh, particularly I think as I'm, I'm getting, uh, you know, perhaps a little more set in my ways, uh, I hate to say older, but uh, sound issues and sound bleed issues really uh, can ruin an, an experience to the point that I walk out of a gallery. You, you you hit the nail on the head because, I mean, think, think of the noisy restaurants that we all go to and how uncomfortable it is to have to scream three feet across the table at your dining partner uh, because the acoustics are so bad. And that's just one element of museums that people deal with um, in, in that respect. And, and certainly... Uh, we for, for every new museum we do, uh, we must have five or six existing museums contact us to be able to 
say, help, <laughs> fix, fix our problems. You know, we're, we're suffering here. And, and the problem is that unlike uh, during capital campaigns where they can find budget and money to do it, trying to come up with the budgets to solve acoustics, no one's sitting there with an acoustic budget allowance in their annual operating funds to, to solve their problems. So they have to go out for grants and, and other ways of, of finding money to fix these problems. Yes, and as I read in a blog you wrote uh, recently, um, the, the other challenge is that when it's done right, you don't notice it. Mm-hmm. You, <laughs> you know, it's not like you can point, point to the big red ribbon you know, that opens the, the gallery and say, see, I did that. Uh, right. In fact, you want to say, do you hear it? Good. I did a good job. Exactly. It's hard on the ego, but <laughs> it's, yes. um, yeah, we, we don't get the same level of glory that the architects and the exhibit designers do, but that's okay because our, our purpose is very different and, and um, the underlying help that this does for patrons of all types is, is uh, wonderful and, and whether they realize it or not, that's, that's not the point. We, we want to give them better experiences from uh, the moment they walk in the doors of the building to the moment they leave. And, and that's what this is all about, is not you know, having a big spotlight on all the nuances and elements that we do to create this immersive sound experience. So as we, you know, we're going to delve into this now for the rest of the show. So why don't you help ground us a little bit maybe mm-hmm. in, you know, vocabulary and some of the main considerations that you have to think about in sound management, because I'm assuming it's more than just worrying where the audio comes out of, say, a film or a, uh, a computer game. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, it's funny that we say sound management. I mean, that's, I, I use that term a lot just because it seems like it, it best encapsulates it, but it really goes beyond that because management sounds like, okay, we're just doing enough to get by and you know, just controlling it enough and oh, like, whew, we got there and we've managed to deal with it. But it's, it's more than that because, yes, there are elements such as managing noise and, and, and that's a big one, the environment, managing excessive reverberation in these open galleries and, and even other spaces. I mean, museums sometimes underplay how much their public spaces will actually be used for revenue-generating events. And so I can't tell you how many atrium spaces are designed, even you know recent ones with major, major architectural upgrades or, or brand-new spaces, beautiful looks, finishes, materials, acoustic disasters. So that you, know, you have you put a you put um, you know 100 people or 200 people for a VIP dinner in them, and then you put a band in there, and people just want to run out screaming. They they can't hear a single word that presenters are saying. So it's not just the galleries; it's a lot of other spaces that get ignored. So so it's really it starts with the environment. Certainly, is is one of three main aspects. So the so the reverberation, the noise level from mechanical systems, also crowd noises, uh, which also get amplified because of the reverberation and and other spaces bleeding sound into these critical spaces. That's one element. The other element is is what we call audio delivery. It's not the whole audio system. It's the component of 
the system that actually works with the space. So it's the loudspeaker or uh, devices that act as delivery of sound and, and what that speaker does, how many there are, where they're located. And, and that all plays into being able to deliver the third aspect properly, which is the actual program. Uh, that program can be a pre-recorded production. It can be a live event of somebody performing, say, or reenacting a play or a skit from history, or it could be a docent or educator presenting within a gallery space to people. So we, we have to optimize all of those elements to truly make the, the sound experience the best it can be. And so many people forget, in the design world, forget one or more of those elements. They might treat the spaces with soft, squishy stuff that <laughs> help the acoustics reverberation, but they don't give much thought to how the sound is delivered to work with that treatment of the space. Or the media programs themselves might be uh, really all over the map in terms of their sound levels from clip to clip within a single production. And we harp on the media producers, which we, we actively engage them on every project we do to really tell them, here's how their productions are going to sit within a particular gallery. And, oh, by the way, there are five other producers in that same open space that are producing um, productions of varying types. Here's how yours is going to work with it. Here's how we're addressing it uh, from an audio delivery side to make sure that it's optimized. But here's what you need to do back in the studio to tweak it, to be able to make sure that when it gets to the site, we're not going to have the problems. How many, how many times have you been to a museum, Carol, where uh, all the sound is just turned down because you know that they want to be able to express it, but they, they either have acoustic challenges, they haven't thought about where the audio is coming from, and, and it just doesn't work. And rather than going back to a producer or, or uh, an AV integrator to, to fix it or, or you know, have, having to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to treat their acoustics, they just turn it down and use captioning on the video screen <laughs> to hope right. people will get the message. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so I want to get to uh, take those those three aspects and learn a little bit more about how you've uh, achieved you know some successes and maybe some challenges. But we're going to do that after our first break. So stay tuned, everyone. Uh, as you've already heard, sound is really important. It's more than simple management. And when we come back, Steve is going to share uh, some of the an example or two of uh, of how this is really working in the real world. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. 
CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and today I am talking with Steve Haas, uh, the uh, president and owner of SH Acoustics. And you can reach him uh, after the show at shacoustics.com or steve at shacoustics to talk further about your own acoustical uh, needs. Uh, Don't be shy. Uh, I think this program is doing a good service for all of us to remember that those things that we can't necessarily see and touch, sound is just as important in our sensing and and experiencing an environment. And before we went on break, Steve shared with us that there are really three issues that are, uh, that he has to sort of balance or think about uh, when he approaches a project or is remediating a project, and that's the overall environment the audio delivery systems, as well as the programs themselves. Uh, So there's a lot to be thinking about. Uh, So, Steve, could you share with us maybe one or two examples of projects that that you've uh, approached and the challenges that you've resolved? Sure. Well, there are a lot of them, a lot of challenges that that, that I have have dealt with in the past. Uh, Probably the most recent certainly is with the Smithsonian's new National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C., and we were responsible for sound management, <laughs> meaning quality and control of sound uh, in all 85,000 square feet of permanent exhibits. And that in itself, due to the size of the project, was certainly a challenge. Um, we, we do love big projects like that, but more so, again, because of the, all the people involved, uh, there, there was a lot of parties to coordinate with, uh, both on the base building side, but also the exhibit team, uh, the design and the fabrication team. But as I mentioned, the third 
leg of that that triad is is the media production, and so we in this case the Smithsonian Channel did a lot of the productions um, under their auspices, and so we had to work with them, their their executive team, their producers to be able to showcase exactly what the concepts were, what the sound delivery was uh, for each exhibit. And, and that uh, the, the process turned into a, a bit of a challenge, but, but we certainly worked through it all. Uh, there are one of, one of the more um, unique spaces and challenges uh, occurs in that museum on the uh, top floor gallery, the cultural gallery, and it's an entire area of music, uh, music genres. It's called musical crossroads, and and it consists of different micro zones, micro climates, if we call them, of genres from jazz to blues to rock and roll to hip hop and and you know so many others that are all open spaces. We're not dealing with headphones here. We're dealing with sound that had to be, to come alive, but in one big open gallery. And nobody thought we could do it. But by using the environment that was very well controlled and uh, very specific audio delivery, what we call um, expanded or or enhanced stereo delivery that, that immerses you without bleeding beyond a certain controlled zone. In this case, it might have been, say, about a 10 by 10 foot um, area where each zone would, would have a concentration of sound. And then as you moved out of there, it wouldn't disappear. And that, that's an important point is because people think, oh, you have to make the sound disappear by the time you get to your next exhibit and program. No, the point is you don't want it to be distracting. And that's a psychoacoustic, psychological uh, phenomena we discovered long ago is as long as it's not distracting and level compared to the sound you're, you're listening to, you're okay. It's okay to have hubbub. It's like being at a cocktail party and having 50 other conversations going on. You can still manage to talk to your, your partner and uh, hear them clearly. So that's one thing I wanted to bring up. But back to uh, this musical crossroads. So... We were able to uh, carefully dial in um, the the sound in each case. It's basically a loop of different songs of the different genres playing at each station, each location, and we achieved exactly what we had set out to do, and that is when you're in the zone, you're feeling immersed, you're feeling this music, and as you step out, then you make the gradual transition to all the other music. And, and I think um, the folks at Smithsonian were, were quite surprised when we were able to, to pull it off. So I'm really proud of that one. Uh, and if you can get tickets, you can all go hear that yourself um, for that museum. There's uh, another one that comes to mind, opened about a couple years ago in Winnipeg, Canada, which is very cold this time of the year. And it's the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. And if uh, anyone is familiar with this museum, the architecture by Antoine Predock is just phenomenal. It's it's just amazing. And unlike most traditional buildings, there are gaps and crevices all the way up through the building. Like nothing is a right angle. And so sound has the potential to leak four floors away from where it's originating from. And we had to, so we had to really think 
throughout all the galleries in three dimensions, not just two, in terms of where sound went and where we needed to prevent it from going to avoid the challenges. And, and that, that in itself was quite an accomplishment to be able to make sure that we got enough environmental control, but also the way we delivered the sound, the way that the productions worked, didn't affect an exhibit three floors up and two bays over. So that that was uh, something that really comes to my mind is is very unique. One of the one of the most unique spaces I've ever been in that museum. That's very interesting. I've never been there, uh, and I'm not going to go to Winnipeg this winter. But I will put it. I will put it on my list of summer things to do to get out of the heat and humidity of Washington. But it sounds very, very interesting. I, you know, what I'm what I'm remembering too. Uh, you know, and again, this is going to date me a little bit. But in some of the first uh, Science Center works uh, projects that I uh, I was doing in the in the 90s, and there was a lot lot of of media you know there were movies and there were games and there were all sorts of activities and they had beeps and bops and and audio and the and the result uh, often the solution was to put on headphones mm-hmm. you know, or, or even earlier ones I think there probably may still be some national park services where you pick up a device that looks like a, a 1960s telephone um, uh, headset sticks, and, you know yeah <laughs> uh, and but but what I'm thinking about when you were talking about the psychoacoustics, when you were talking about you know it's like a cocktail party or a, you know a celebration, is one of the things from an educational standpoint uh, that we try to do is recognize that museums are social places. You don't mm-hmm. want to to stop uh, you know. A, 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 discussions, uh, sharing things, uh, and so any kind of audio wand or headset uh, really can isolate people where what we're trying to do is to create community. And so it, it that is something that, while I've always known that sound was important, I never understood, I, I, I guess I just didn't appreciate how much Acoustical management is, you know, even though it's a crummy word, um, mm-hmm. is is really reinforcing the entire kind of experience that we're trying to create for our museums uh, visitors, which is different than just get, you know, getting content from the internet. Uh, mm-hmm. It really is 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 communi- creating the sense of community. Uh, that's that's really really, uh, I think, good to know and. Reminds me some of the things that uh, Paul Burke of Guru, who was on the show last week, was sharing some of the ideas that they are doing with uh, a localized um, uh, a cell phone uh, delivery and uh, using video in that regard as well. So I would think that now you're also having to, to be aware that, that audiences are bringing their own devices and those have their own sound. Mm-hmm. Right. And we've been we've been preaching the positive um, qualities of having that social shared experience for many many years. And no offense to our our uh, colleagues who deliver the tour guides and and the handsets and everything, but it is a different experience when you do put on headsets or or even have. Uh, the, the, the worst is actually the, the one-ear 
head, headset or a sound stick because you're actually halfway in between and your brain gets quite confused. And we've, we've proven this in, in situations where one ear is completely open to the active environment and the other ear is trying to listen to what's coming out of this tiny little uh, speaker device in your, in your handset. And so you're, you're fighting yourself in, in many ways. And so, but at the same time, it's a reality in some cases. So while we try to avoid handsets, head, headsets, um, there are still situations if a museum, say, insists on having a choice of four different audio programs that need to be heard by three or four different people right in the same location. That's just, there are some things that we, we can go pretty far with what we'll call ambient audio, meaning audio heard through the air uh, in terms of focusing, but, but something like that it tends to go beyond and we're, we resort to it. We don't like it, but we do resort to having something that is durable, hygienic as possible, and, and, and actually sounds good because a lot of these headsets and sound um, wands and sticks don't really sound very good at all, very distorted as you try to turn them up uh, with their little volume knob, and then you get another sense of, of problem. Yes, and you know, and it reminds me too uh, that, and and going back to uh, talking with Paul. Of course, his company provides you know one option for for certain situations, but but it does also underscore how things technologically are changing so very rapidly uh, that, you know, while sound sticks or something like that might be the solution today, they won't be that same solution in five years. And if you haven't considered all of the acoustical uh, considerations in your space, then when you change your technology, you're just going from the frying pan into the fire, potentially. Mm-hmm. Right. There's one other point I wanted to make in terms of our philosophy on tour guides and such, and that is we, we believe that there are two levels of experiencing a museum, and that is uh, the, the fundamental level it uses open-air sound, ambient audio, so everybody can just walk through a museum, experience it to a certain level, but those who really want to dig into the, uh, the educational content, the content of a museum, in a much further way, I think it would be great. I know this is not realistic because people don't have all the time in the world and there may, might only be in a place that, uh, for a certain amount of time. But uh, for, for somebody to be able to go back and use a tour guide to now say, okay, I want a more in-depth understanding, a more in-depth uh, educational understanding of this content of this museum. And I, I think that's an excellent way to use tour guides um, as, as that secondary level of presentation, but always still have the primary level be something that is the shared social experience. That's that's uh, that's a very good point too, which goes back to a term that we've used uh, it, you know, for probably the last twenty five years in interpretive planning, and that is a layered approach. Everyone comes with their own expectations and needs, and uh, and it will be different every time they they visit a, a museum. Uh, right before we go to break, we've got about three minutes, but I I wanted to, the other thing that occurs to me, uh, and I wanted to mention it, is that, you know, we talk a lot 
about universal design. Uh, we've talked to, about it on this program uh, quite a bit. Uh, you even mentioned it when we talked about, you know, captioning. That's one aspect of universal mm-hmm. design. But it would occur to me that acoustic environments plays a significant role in a museum that wants to be accessible to all and uh, go beyond just the letter of the law of ADA, but really embrace the principles of universal design. Do you find that? Absolutely. Um, The last couple of years, as a matter of fact, I've been seeing it so much more. I've been doing research into the effects of acoustic environments, meaning excessively reverberant or noisy environments on not just children, but, but people in general with a hard of hearing where, they're, where they have uh, hearing aids or other implant devices, uh, but also autistic children. It, it presents a huge challenge for, for autistic children that, that can easily be distracted by noise and noisy environments. And uh, one, of the, one of my current uh, clients, uh, uh, I'll call it the remedial type of client who came to us with, with existing conditions is uh, the Long Island Children's Museum in New York. And they have uh, realized just how much they need to upgrade um, a lot of aspects of their galleries uh, to help improve education, uh, educational um, uh, effectiveness because they're having a lot of problems with docents and educators being heard in the galleries as they're trying to give presentations, uh, the air conditioning, the HVAC is so noisy, the uh, galleries are untreated, so it's just one big uh, echo box, as they say. And we have come in and, and helped them uh, develop a, a strategic plan, a multi-year plan, to be able to uh, improve things step-by-step uh, step with varying grants available to them. And I was speaking with the director of the museum recently, and uh, she was just sharing that they actually, because of the conditions in this museum being so non-conducive to um, hard of hearing, uh, you know, challenging, challenged uh, children, uh, autistic as well, they actually have separate times that might occur before or after the museum is opening, that, it, that basically um, children and their parents uh, who are facing these, these challenges can actually come when it's much less noisy from the crowds of kids and they can, they can control their experience much better so they don't have the anxiety, the, the panic attacks, the, the, the other challenges that come with uh, not being able to, to um, tolerate those noisy environments. Yeah, that's a that's a very good story on a number of levels, and I just wanted to say, as our our colleague Beth Redmond Jones uh, from the San Diego Museum of Natural History has been lecturing and speaking on this topic, and uh, uh, from both personal uh, experience and professional, is all of those children that we are focused on who are on part of on the autism spectrum will grow up and become adults. And so it doesn't matter what kind of, of you know, it, it's not just children's museums, it's art museums and history museums uh, who will want to open their doors, so to speak, uh, to people who are, who have, uh, who are on this, this spectrum 
and we can't ignore it. So I think it is going to show, Steve, that your work is even more important than uh, perhaps previously uh, uh, previously acknowledged. And uh, I'll, we can talk a little bit more about that. But right now we're going to go on our second break. And when we come back, more with Steve Haas. And, uh, and I think he will even share a couple of insider tips uh, for those of you who are beginning to realize how important this, uh, this area of museum work is and that maybe you don't quite know how to get started. So please stay tuned. We will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and I've been talking uh, about acoustics and their value in uh, museums. Uh, And I've been talking with an expert, Steve Haas, who is president of SH Acoustics. And I know some of you are going to want to reach out to him uh, very soon. So you can do that at shacoustics.com. You can also find him on the Praxis Museum, uh, Praxis Exhibit Project website, uh, where you'll also find some other uh, wonderful experts to help you with your exhibition projects. But I think the point that I want to make here, Steve, is to everyone listening, is that acoustics, as you have pointed out, are more than just for exhibits, and they're more than just for uh, new projects. Uh, They are an essential part of the museum experience. 
whether it's after hours, whether it's in a public space, maybe it's even in, in the lovely cafe. It's part of the complete museum uh, experience, and it also is an essential part of uh, providing access to all people through the principles of universal design. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could, you know, what advice uh, do you, would you give a museum who's searching for uh, an acoustic design professional or maybe they're looking around and saying, oh, our museum is so small, old, you know, whatever, uh, we could never do that. Well, it's, it certainly comes back to experience. In, in a particular field. I like to say you don't hire a podiatrist to do heart surgery just because they have an MD after their name. Um, you, you have to find somebody who really understands not just the technical aspects, but the, the social, psychological aspects as well of these environments, what really happens in them, how do people interface with them, because that's really what it comes down to. You know, the technical stuff, yes, you have to assume that that's going to take care of itself with, with the right expertise, but it's really trying to make sure you as a museum understand what experience do I want to give my visitors? You know, what, what is it that I want to change? You know, admit you have uh, a problem with, with less than optimal conditions, as so many museums do, and, and really one of the things that it starts with um, is, is really educating the architects and the exhibit designers themselves since they're really, they have their, their thumb on the button, so to speak, in terms of how to proceed with any given uh, new project or certainly remedial projects as well. And, and, and those elements might be internal too. You might have an internal exhibit team that might have some awareness of uh, acoustic control and audio delivery and, and how to optimize productions, but they may not be able to tie it all together. And that's what you really need is, is someone who can tie it all together and, and make sure that there's a plan from start to finish. That's, uh, that's very, very good advice. And what, so what, what kind of, I mean, I know you don't want to give away uh, trade secrets, and optimally, everyone should uh, call and hire you, and they should do it at the very, very beginning of a project. But let's say you're, you know, a, a modest historic house uh, that that, but is very concerned with universal design and wants to make a better experience and maybe they've even uh, you know, had some visitor evaluation people come in and realize that there are some problems. What could they do? Well, one of the things that I, I find in a lot of museums that even have a, a good complement of audio is that the audio has not been what we call calibrated or tuned, and that sounds like a fancy technical world word, but it's not. It's, it's really just making sure that uh, the productions coming out of the, the, um, the, the speakers and, and the audio system can sound as good as they can sound in the rooms that they're in. And, and it really, it still is amazing to me. I, I just went to uh, a brand new museum, and I will not name it <laughs> or its location, but clearly they, they spent a lot of money on the exhibits, and, and yet 
most of the audio programs, I kid you not, were, were mildly unintelligible because, and I could tell it wasn't because there was a fault in what components they chose and the, the acoustic environments were not horrible. They were, they were okay, uh, but they didn't take the time to tune the system. If, if, a, if a record company was making an album uh, or a song and they just recorded the individual tracks of singers and drums and keyboards and such, um, but they didn't tune it, they didn't mix it or master it, imagine how your music would sound that you listen to. It wouldn't sound very good. And, and that is what happens when you don't acoustically calibrate your systems for your environments very different than sitting there in your living room. I can go listen to the, my TV speakers on my 32-inch Sony TV in my bedroom, and they'll sound better than a lot of audio systems that I hear in museums, and it's all because they haven't done this calibration. And that is one of the key factors in wrapping up the entire process so that your visitors will get improvement in sound quality. And then certainly beyond there is, is addressing those other, those other issues, the environments, the noise levels, other things like that. But the, but the one point I wanted to take away from all this, or hope, hope your listeners will take away, is it doesn't have to be a monumental effort. There are small to, to moderate improvements that can be done at corresponding reasonable costs to improve your situations. And, you know, every situation is a bit different, but there are common themes and threads. So you have to be able to say, okay, it's, it's not, I don't have to, you know, take a huge bite out of the apple. I can, I can take small little nibbles and, and gradually improve conditions. I can prioritize exhibits or gallery spaces where I want to either have an educational, uh, an improvement in educational presentation or just a general uh, quelling of noise from kids or other areas. So it's, it's think about it step by step. Prioritization is really the important thing in an existing situation to be able to solve your acoustic challenges. You know, that really is an important point, Steve, and I can, uh, you know, I can imagine that bringing in, you know, that is a tremendous amount of the work and, uh, a craft that you can can provide a client is to help them understand and sort of chart out that strategy. You know, we talk mm-hmm. about digital strategies and we talk about, you know, all sorts of other kind of maintenance strategies. You know, someone knows whether it's the time to, you know, resurface the parking lot this year or repair the roof, but all of those things are on the list that this could be, you know, something that you provide uh, clients as well, you know, walking through and helping them understand how they can do these improvements, even though, you know, it's maybe not the sexy, shiny thing. It's an essential part of their responsibilities as a, as a, as a public uh, community space. That's right. So what's next on the horizon for you? Well, we're, we're uh, involved in wrapping up two very uh, nice projects here in the spring. Uh, one of them is, is also up in Canada. Uh, it's at the Canadian History Museum, 
uh, Museum of History, and uh, it's their new Canada's History Hall, 40,000 square foot of, of very challenging exhibits as well. In, in a very grand architectural space that, that we're trying to take control of and do everything we have to do to make this a very successful uh, work. And that's going to be um, opening on Canada Day in, in uh, July of uh, next year. So we have a lot of work to do to, to make that happen. And then the other one is a little more local in Philadelphia, the Museum of the American Revolution. So we're wrapping that up. We'll be doing all those that calibration work in a couple months uh, that, that we talked about, and that will be opening in April, and then much more on the horizon. Well, that is that is fabulous. I am sure these things keep you very, very busy. Um, I'm wondering, I'm still worried about that uh, that that small little history uh, museum, or is there anything that they can do? You you were talking about grants. Are there uh-huh. there grants uh, that uh, people can apply for that could help them bring in uh, bring in and use your services? Uh, ab- absolutely. I, I don't have all the knowledge of of the grant details, but as I mentioned, the current uh, work with the Long Island Children's Museum, they have a, they're going after several grants uh, that will uh, address different aspects of acoustics and audio upgrades, and so one grant per year, I believe, and and so certainly there there are opportunities out there just based on my experience with them recently for small museums, which they, they certainly qualify as that. Uh, to be able to get these types of grants for for the facility improvements in that regard. Thank you, thank you. That's that's very very helpful and encouraging. You know, the other thing uh, that that came to mind when you were talking about the importance of of just having an organization calibrate their space. Going back to the three things that you said before that you you know that you look at the environment, audio delivery, and program is that the programs change all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is something that you know just like you get your car tuned up on a regular basis. This is something that you would you really need to be doing uh, on a regular basis. It's just not well. We did it five years ago. It must be good. Right. Absolutely. Um, and and it's uh, also in the calibration effort. We actually can tell if there are issues with the program, even if we hadn't been involved with the producers or the productions um, previously. We we can find out if there are any issues with balance between them and suggest that they go back to their producer. But with the changing programs, there also comes um, changing conditions in the museum. Uh, We've gone back to uh, one of our other projects, the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, twice now since the original calibration back in 2003 to somewhere around there uh, to recalibrate their, their exhibits because they might have had a power failure and all of the technical settings were lost or maybe equipment had to be changed out so things, things just got out of disarray and so it's, it's important that we, we have to keep tabs on all of our museum clients and make sure that they are aware that things can shift, technology shifts. It shouldn't, <laughs> theoretically it shouldn't, but it does. And so these retunings, these, these updates, these refreshers, 
uh, really do need to happen every four to five years, and, and we've been very successful at, at getting a lot of our clients to, to understand that and, and move well, forward so that they're always keeping things operating at a high level. That's that's a very important uh, point, and that's where we're going to end today. Steve, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you so much, Carol, for having me. And uh, again, you can reach Steve at shacoustics.com. I know you'll want to do that. And we'll be back next week with another edition of Museum Life. And until then, this is Carol Bossert. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.